Thank you. Thank you so much. This is working. This is a full of faith place. Andy Murray's going to win Wimbledon. And the church is like, the, the rise of faith in the room for that. You know, God's on the throne. Yeah, that's all right. Andrew Murray, yeah, he is going to win Wimbledon. It's great. Well done. Um, I, you have more faith than I do, I'm sorry to admit. I just, it's just the metronomic Swissness of Roger Federer, isn't it? He just, he doesn't get flapped. He just is, no matter, he's just impassive. Bang, bang, bang. Whereas Andrew Murray's like, yeah, when he does well and when he does badly. So I'm, I don't know, I'm not full of faith as much as some of you, but you'll be texting, I'm sure, and going, ah, if he wins, which would be great. Do you want to turn to Revelation chapter 12, if you have a Bible? If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, the words will appear up here, I think. Um, But I need to give a couple of disclaimers before this is read, because it is one of the strangest passages in the whole Bible. And if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, if Christianity is new to you, or you have recently become a disciple of Jesus, but it's still a bit of a fog... This will sound utterly bizarre it, as a passage of the Bible. The Bible's made of a lot of different types of writing and some of them are very much like writings we have today. Uh, stories and kind of illustration, parable type stories and letters and types of writing we still use, songs. But there are some parts of writing, types of writing the Bible uses that we don't and when we read them, they're very strange to us. And we'll get an example of that in a moment Now, some of you have been been Christians for many years and this will be very straightforward and you could easily explain what this passage was about. But for... Why are you laughing? You haven't even read it yet. If some of you are already just going, oh, lion, dragon, woman, beast, ah. Okay, it's, it's a passage which in some ways would make anybody coming to Christianity for the first time and reading this would think, you guys are all mad. This is such a strange image. That's not necessarily because the content of the text is particularly peculiar. It's because we don't understand the type of writing, because no one in the modern world uses it. 2,000 years ago, it was a a type of writing that some people used. It's called apocalyptic. We'll talk a bit about it in a moment. It uses very dramatic, colourful, lurid symbols to try and explain heavenly realities. But we don't use it now. It's just a type of writing nobody uses. You don't read through a library and find the apocalyptic section. Right? The closest thing, we have the mind, body and spirit section, which back then they would have thought was very weird. Lots of people sort of going, ah, ha, ha, buy a crystal. But we don't we have the writing like that that nobody else until 30 years ago had. In their day, they had this type of writing and we don't have it. So when we read it, we've got to realise we're encountering a type of text that no one uses, so it will sound weird. But it's, we can pick through it, but I'm just wanting to let you know that before we read it, in case you're new to all this and this just sounds mad. I think there's something very, very powerful in this passage that God wants to speak to us. And I'm committed to the, the, the idea, the, the statement of, of Paul's that all of the scriptures are breathed out by God and useful for teaching. So sometimes it's good to take passages that everyone just skips over when they read it and try and show how it's useful. So that's what we're going to do now. With all of that said, let's read Revelation 12 and verse 1. I'm reading in the ESV and I think that will be what appears up here. No, it will not appear up here. I'm being received signs on the back, angry, waving. No, the Bible is not going to appear on the screen. Sorry. Uh, you'll just have to trust me that what I'm reading is actually in the Bible. Uh, Revelation 12:1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. This is where some of you are already going, whoa, interesting. And on his heads, seven diadems, which means crowns. 
his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. It's going to be great fun. Okay, now, war arose in heaven, verse 7. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our Lord God, and, uh, lost myself, kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, for he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like I'm laughing now. This is just hilarious. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Any takers? <laughs> I know that, I said, it might be the strangest chapter in the Bible. It's certainly in the top three or five, and the others are all in the book of Revelation. It is very peculiar. And because it's, and I just want to share a little bit about the type of writing we're dealing with and how it works, so then when we start talking about the passage, we'll hopefully make some sense. It's a type of writing, as I said, we don't use, called apocalyptic. And um, apocalypse is, is a word that means unveiling or revelation, um, and it it kind of almost in a literal sense, I suppose, would refer to the removal of a veil or the removal of a curtain so that you could see what was behind it. I don't know what is behind that curtain, um, but I'm going to assume just a wall. But let's say for a moment there was just a dramatic, silent event and show taking place behind those curtains. And unveiling would be like the moment when somebody just goes, right, I'm going to pull, um, in fact, it might go squeak, but I hope it won't, and come here and rip down the whole curtain, and behind, <gasps> there's a gasp, as you guys see, wow, there's a whole load of people silently doing weird things behind that curtain. Let's say there is, okay? Apocalypsis is that moment. Apocalyptic writing is the pulling back of the curtain, the, the unveiling, so that you are able to see what's going on that you couldn't previously see behind the scenes. Now, in the analogy of Revelation, the way Revelation works, what it's really saying is, listen, the things you can see in the world, the rise and fall of empires and governments and diseases coming and then going and people advancing and being educated and travelling around the world and doing normal life and farming and gardening and eating, all of those things are the stuff that's taking place on the stage. You can see it. That, that, they're not hidden realities to you. They're normal life. You observe that all the time. But behind the stage... 
there's a curtain, if you like, and behind the curtain there is a whole bunch of spiritual realities taking place which you can't see. And what Revelation is, as a book, is an unveiling of those things, most primarily Jesus Christ himself. You cannot see the spiritual realities that drive the world you live in. Now, this is true whether you're a Christian believer or not. If you're looking in at Christianity, you've got to, got to, I, I suppose I'd ask you to consider the idea that if there is a spiritual world at all, which is what the vast majority of people in human history and most people in this room believe, there is a spiritual reality, not just a material one, there's souls and there's a spiritual world. If there is, you can't see it. And therefore you're not necessarily always in the best place to tell exactly what's going on and how it works. And what apocalyptic as a type of writing does is it says, I'm going to rip the curtain away and show you what's behind the veil of what you can see. I want to show you that backstage there's a whole bunch of things taking place that you are not necessarily aware of that shape everything you see and know. So you think that this is just a question of a government doing this or a person doing that. Actually there are spiritual realities undergirding that thing you can see and you need to know what they are. And, it's like, and in picture language, it's woman, dragon, birth pains, um, serpents swallowing rivers and earth swallowing that, and all, these, all of these you know, heads and crowns. These are symbolic pictures to describe spiritual realities that take place all the time that give reasoning and explanation for the world you and I live in. And it's important not to be naive about the reality of that spiritual world. And so that's what apocalyptic does as a type of writing. It rips away the curtain, it unveils and shows you what's going on backstage. It's not primarily, as many of us have used it, I think, for centuries in the Christian church, it's not primarily a crystal ball that you look in and go, oh, what will happen next? <gasps> it's, a, it's a map, it's a pathway, it'll tell me exactly what will take place. And it doesn't, in that sense, sort of map out the future in a literally chronological way. The writing just isn't intended to work like that. There's, we've got quite a few types of writing like this from this period of history, and it doesn't work that way. It doesn't function as a literal chronological map of what will happen when. And some of us read it that way and then get very confused. My wife was having a, a, time, a devotional time a few years ago reading a commentary on Ezekiel. Um, and I was having my devotional time in the other room because we didn't have kids then. And you can both have devotional times at the same time. Woo. Can't do that now. Um, and you're lucky if you both get one on the same day, I've, I've discovered. But back then we used to both do it. I was reading my Bible and I suddenly heard a shout, Andrew, can you come in here for a moment? So I joined it to her next door. Yes, what is it? That makes her sound like a weird person. She's really not. She's lovely. Um, <laughs> But, so I, I kind of stepped through it and, and she said, I'm reading this commentary on Ezekiel and it's been fine until now, but it's just said this. According to Daniel 9, the nation of Israel will make an agreement with the head of a ten-nation European coalition to protect them for seven years so they can rebuild their temple. That's not true, is it? And I was like, no, 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 I don't think that's what that verse is saying at all. What the writer's done is to say, I'm going to treat this like it's each, each European coalition. I don't think the concept of Europe even existed back then. That just through we go, map on, sign upon sign upon sign, and now we can make predictions, and therefore we can make it about the, Europe, the EEC, as it was then, or the EU now. The EU is in the Bible. Did you know that? I was like, the EU is not in the Bible. That's, not, that's treating it like a roadmap of symbols but actually the type of writing is not doing that at all. It's saying, let's pull back the curtain on history and show you the spiritual realities at work behind what's going on. So if we read it that way, then when we see dragons and women and horns and crowns and all these things, we begin to think, right, now, how does that symbol work in the context of this type of writing? And so we start with the clear symbols and work out from there. That's like an introductory thing on writing like this, which I hope will help. Um, so what I'm going to do is then break the, the passage into three bits, 
and try and dramatize, well, not literally dramatize, because I didn't bring my dragon costume, sadly, but just try and show you the way the drama works and then unpack what's going on in each stage. And I'm going to suggest we look at it in three bits. The first bit is the story of Satan versus Jesus in verses 1 to 9. Then the next bit we're going to look at is Satan versus God's people in verses 12 to 17. And then at the end we're going to look at the bit in the middle, verses 10 to 11, which is about how God's people win. Okay, so it's about a cosmic battle, Satan versus Jesus, then Satan versus God's people, and then in the middle, how God's people win. So we're going to start with this bit, Satan versus Jesus, and read verses 1 to 9. And so I'll just go, th- go through a little bit at a time. Again, I'll read the text so you can see roughly where we are. Um, but all these symbols, we just need to figure out what they are. Okay? So it starts, And a great sign appeared in heaven, in the sky. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now that woman is almost certainly Israel. Because the picture of the sun, the moon and the stars is used in the Old Testament for Israel and the fact that there's 12 of the stars indicates that it's talking about 12 tribes. So the woman, for the rest of the story, is Israel. Then it says, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now I know you don't want me to dramatise this, so I shan't, but Israel, is in, in that sense, is giving birth to a male child at this point in the story and is crying out, saying, this is hard, this is a strain, but here, here comes a baby. Then, another sign, verse 3, appeared in heaven. A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven crowns or diadems. Now that dragon is definitely Satan. That's the devil. I don't know if you believe in the devil or not. If you're a Christian, you probably do. If you're not a Christian, you may not. The Bible talks very clearly about there not just being a good in the, in the universe and not just being a good God, there is also evil. And there is also evil in personal form. It's not yin and yang, no, they're not equal. Good is superior. God is greater by far than the devil, but there is a devil. And this is, this is who the devil is in the story. A great red dragon, and he's got his red, which probably indicates blood, and he's got crowns on his heads, which probably indicates supremacy of some sort, authority and ability to rule. So we have a woman, Israel, straining to give birth to a child, and we have a dragon, okay, so far. And then we read... His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, which in other words caused massive cosmic turmoil, and cast them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This is sick. There's a dragon poised, it's like a woman in a delivery suite, about to give birth to a baby, and there's a dragon has entered the room and is about to eat the child. Some of you are not chuffed that you kept your kids in for this. This is really weird and disturbing. And so the dragon is saying, I want to destroy this child as soon as it's born. Now the male child, as we go through, is clearly described as Jesus, Israel's Messiah. And the way we know that is because in verse 5, when she eventually does give birth, he is described as one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And that again is a reference back to Psalm 2 which talks about Jesus the Messiah as the one who rules the nations with a rod of iron. So this is talking about Israel, the woman, giving birth to a baby, Jesus the Messiah, and the dragon wanting to kill him as soon as he's born. Now that's actually historically exactly what happened. Now we didn't see the dragon. The dragon's backstage. We didn't see that. What we saw was Jesus has been born into a nation that's occupied by enemies and is in crushing poverty, and the king, the local king of the area, a guy called Herod, attempted to destroy the baby as soon as he was born. He killed all the under twos in the area in order to make sure that Jesus, who was a rival to his throne, was dead. And they escaped. 
But this is exactly what Revelation is describing. But Revelation is saying, you saw Herod and you saw, um, a sh- you know, you saw shepherds and you saw wise men and you saw the Christmas story. What I saw was, behind the stage, dragon trying to destroy. That was the devil at work trying to wipe out the hope of the world. And the devil was trying to get there and, as it says in the next bit of verse 5, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The child, the male child, Jesus the Messiah, escaped the persecution of the devil and did many, many other things and then was exalted to the throne of God. That's what it says in verse 5. And then the woman fled into the wilderness. So Israel then runs into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, 1,260 days is a very specific number. Anybody care to hazard a guess? Have we got any guesses? Do you ever do this in church? No, people are, we're not allowed to talk in church. I don't know. Does anybody have a guess? Sorry? Three and a half years, says Ron Simpkins. Do we give him a, let's, let's give him a clapometer as to whether we think he's right. There's a, there's a ripple. Okay, I think he's right. Does that get a bigger round of applause? Yes, yes, okay. Three and a half years. But why? Why is that relevant? Why does anyone care that it's three and a half years long? Numbers in, um, in different societies get symbolic value sometimes. If I give you two numbers in English, I guarantee you'll know to what they refer, even though they don't refer to them in the normal English dating system. If I give you the numbers 9-11 next to each other, you instantly know what I mean. Yeah? The numbers have caught on a symbolic value, even though in English it's 11-9. We still know what it means, don't we? Yeah? You, you, you've presumably noticed that before. And some of you, it still grates with you, doesn't it? It's like, 9-11, stupid Americans. I can feel it. There's a sort of a Britishness to go, no, they've changed our dating system. Um, and it's the English language anyway, and all that kind of thing. But uh, let's assume you can get over your racism about Americans. So, 9-11, you know what it means. Two numbers next to each other. That, those two numbers would have meant nothing to your grandparents. Would they? Or nothing to your parents, unless they were obviously around in the last 10 or 11 years. In the late 1990s, you would... Now, you know, I mean, maybe 1988, do you ever think about this? You just refer to downloading something or going online or using the web and they would have no idea what you meant. And if you said, oh, well, ever since 9-11, they would say, what is 9-11? They'd think it was the 9th of November. And they wouldn't know what it meant. The reason is because those two numbers symbolise for us a, a date that is very formative and traumatic in our international history as a world. And even is, as a, in a national history, in a sense, 7-7, seven, seven, to, uh, to a similar degree, has the same of, in, impact here. So those numbers are familiar to us, and they mean something to us that they don't mean to anybody else outside of the last 11 years in the Western world. The number 1,260 days, or three and a half years, or as it's later described, a time, which is one, times, which is two, and half a time, which is half. It's quite hard to straighten that finger and not that one. Um, so anyway, three and a half years is a symbolic number in their world that had a similar value to 9-11 and ours. And what it meant, what it referred to was the period of three and a half years of oppression that Israel came under in the period in between the Old and New Testaments. So in 168 BC, the Syrian king called Antiochus IV marches in, comes in and says, these Jews, I'm fed up with these Jews, there's a long story behind it, but basically I'm fed up with these Jews, and he attacks them, he forces them to, where possible, to remove the marks of circumcision, he forces them to repent of ever being Jews, he sacrifices a pig in the Holy of Holies, in the altar, and it desecrates the temple, which is the most vile, anti-Semitic thing you can ever do. I mean, this is like the Holocaust of its day. They absolutely violent oppression of the Jews. For three and a half years, the Jews are living under this pounding from this foreign nation 
trying to force them to renounce Judaism until the Jews actually rise up and fight and they win. And in 164 BC, they gain independence for nearly 100 years. So that period, three and a half years, has a meaning to them like 9-11 does in our world. It means period of intense, oppressive persecution in which the enemy is out to destroy the faith of you and your fathers. So when you read it, what you see, when the woman flees into the wilderness where she's to be nourished for 1,260 days, three and a half years, that for them would mean the woman is, is being preserved in the wilderness through a time of intense persecution while the enemies of God are trying to destroy her. That's what's going on in that verse. So, summary, God's people, the woman, produces a Messiah, the dragon, the devil, tries to kill the Messiah, the baby gets away and is exalted to the throne of God, but the woman is then pursued and in danger and being oppressed by the dragon, but is being kept safe by God for a period, throughout a long period of intense persecution. That's what we've got so far. Verses 7 to 9 then say, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and the angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So Satan and his demons were, if you like, in heaven. And there's a war between Satan and his demons and Michael and his angels and the two of them fight and Michael and the angels win and the devil gets cast down to the earth. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but in the Old Testament, Satan had access to heaven. If you know your Bible, Satan would, would seems to be able to wander in to the presence of God and accuse believers. That's what, he, what happens with Job. He seems to just sort of saunter, he think, what are you doing here? But he seems to just wander in and be able to say, you're, you're, this servant Job, he's only faithful to you because you're nice to him. Kill him, crush him, let me get him and I'll show you that he's useless. It's an accusation, a spitting accusations against God's people. Satan seems to have had that right in the Old Testament. But as a result of the the, the things we've just been reading about, the fact that the child, the Messiah, has been born to God's people and safely made it through to God's throne, because of that, a battle takes place at the end of which the dragon, Satan, is thrown out of heaven and is no longer allowed to accuse anybody. We'll come back to that theme in a moment. But for now, Satan isn't in heaven, according to this. He used to be. He used to be able to prance around going, yeah, what about him? He's useless. Oh, look at Santino, load of rubbish. And, uh, and now he's not allowed to do that because he's been thrown down because of something that's happened, which we will come back to in a moment. And that's very, very important for us to understand the spiritual realities at work behind what we see. It has massive implications for our understanding of the good news we have in Jesus. Because of Jesus and the kingdom of God that he preached and enacted, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now Christians sometimes read that as if that means something that happened a long time ago. I don't think it does. I think it refers to something that's happening because of the preaching of the kingdom. He said, because Jesus is here embodying God's rule on the earth, Satan no longer has access to heaven. He's been thrown down and he can't accuse people anymore. That's going to be very important in a few moments' time. But... That's kind of a lot of the symbols just trying to unpack. Dragons, babies, women, well, we'll hopefully be able to make a bit of sense of that. Now, I want to skip forward for a moment then to verses 12 to 17 and begin to read there as well. So, verse 12, which we're going to jump verses 10 and 11 for a moment and come back to it later. Verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Because that's great, isn't it? That We used to have Satan around here and now we don't. Woo-hoo-hoo! Have a rejoice. I don't know if you sound like that when you rejoice 
or not. Maybe this afternoon Murray wins and there'll be a few people in Hastings going, woo-hoo-hoo. Probably most of you look a bit more masculine than that if you're men, and that's good. And therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Good news for you, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, for he knows that his time is short. So it's great. the fact that Satan's now no longer in heaven able to accuse is brilliant for heaven, but it's bad for earth at one level because the devil comes down to the earth and I'm going to destroy you all and he's going to wipe you out and he's aggressive and he's angry because he knows his time is short history interestingly bears this one out when you see dictators suffer losses it often makes them angrier and causes them to destroy more people it happened in the, war, in the second world war Hitler did it a lot of the most violent fighting in the second world war was after D-Day which you wouldn't think but actually it was in the period when the Allies were advancing across France, pegging back the Nazis, and they, he, they throw the whole kitchen sink to try and win and end up getting angrier and angrier and more and more people get sacrificed. It's Saddam Hussein did it. When he was, knew he was going to lose the, the first Gulf War, retreating back, setting fire to all the oil. Do you remember that? So I know some of you are old enough to remember it. And again, this, this rage of the dictator who knows his time is short and ends up doing everything he can to take as many people down as he can. Well, that's what the devil does according to this passage. Rejoice, heaven. That's great. No Satan. Earth, woe to you, because the devil knows his time is short and he's really angry. Verse 13 then says, And when the dragon saw he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. The dragon sees, this is what's going on. I am angry about this. And so he pursues God's people. And God's people are given wings to be able to be protected, if you like, like the eagle. So again, an image, it's not literal, but to be given wings to be protected by God for a time, times and half a time, for three and a half years. Yes, Satan is out to destroy the people of God, but God is protecting them throughout this period as well. And that dynamic underpins everything you see in the world. Satan is trying to destroy God's people, by, by which I mean, by the way, Israel and the church. I think the two are, to be honest, one in my understanding of biblical theology anyway. Now, one people of God, Jew and Gentile together. Satan's out to destroy us, but God protects and preserves. God guards and God sustains and God maintains, even as the dragon is trying to eat you and destroy you. And it's very, very important to have that understanding of the world we live in now, because otherwise you just look simply at the material. You look at the stage you say, wow, okay, what can I see on this stage? I can see there's genocide and there's humanitarian disaster and there's the Holocaust and there's um, cancer and depression and miscarriages and I can see the physical realities which I hate here. And you can forget that behind the stage, this is going on. Dragon out to destroy you for following Jesus and out to destroy Israel for being people that God made a covenant to and God in the business of preserving those people. And it's easy to miss that that's the dynamic at work in the world we live in. And then it says, the, the serpent poured water like a, like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away, but the earth came to the help of the woman and opened its mouth and swallowed the river. So the dragon's out to destroy the people of God, but the earth fights on the side of God's people. And then finally in verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, it's us lot, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is a passage about war. This whole thing's about war. Life is about war. It's other things as well, but it's always about war. If you are, whether you're a Christian believer or not, you are in a spiritual war at the moment. Now, some of you, that's a weird idea to hear. 
and the whole of what I'm saying is weird ideas to hear. Some of you already know that to be true. Some of you have heard that it's true, but don't live daily as if it is. You forget it. It just feels too comfortable now. I was reflecting on this yesterday. I just thought, I've got, I was talking about it in the car on the way over here. Just, I've got my, my wife and my two children and my dog and my four-bedroomed house. It does not feel warlike in a day-to-day basis. So it's very easy for me to be dulled into forgetting that this is the kind of life I lead, whether I'm aware of it or not, and if I don't, all that happens is I become naive, I become passive, and I also become horrified at the first sign of suffering. If I remember that this is the way the world looks, if I remember that it's a dragon now to destroy me and God fighting to preserve me from him in order to vindicate Jesus and one day save all of us, if I forget that that's the way the world is, then any time something hard cuts into my life, I totally lose the plot. If you're involved in suffering at the moment, it may not be the biggest comfort, but it's an important bit of steel to put in your spine to reflect on passages like this, to think, this is, of course, what Jesus always said was going to happen. I was going to face a pounding in this life. My hope is not based in this world. My hope is based that God is going to come and make this world new in the future and I'm going to inherit that and then there won't be any problems. But for now, I've got problem after problem and I would expect to have if I read the Bible. In Britain, where we're fairly middle class, even in Hastings, and where we are generally, you know, it's a very, quite an easy, comfortable life relative to most human beings who've had to fight for survival for most of their time it's very easy to lose track of the reality of war being everything that we are in life. And that changes the way you consider suffering. We've got a guy in our church who was... um, We may have... Have we got any D-Day vets here? Anybody who was there at D-Day in the room, by any chance? Okay. We have a guy in our church called Dave. He wasn't a a combat soldier, but he was pulling bodies off the beach on D-Day. So, 6th of June 1944, that's where you'd have found my friend Dave, who sits on our second row, because uh, he's old now and, and can't hear that well. I'm not saying any of you are old and deaf, I'm just saying, you know. Anyway, so he, and he was there, and I, I remember saying to him, as I was preparing this message, just, Dave, I suspect that on that day, as you were seeing, you know, I imagine you, I've seen Saving Private Ryan, you may not have, but, you know, you, you just see the artillery tubes up on the hill, on the cliffs, and you could just see thousands and thousands of men jumping off the sides of boats and often being shot before they hit the water and scrambling for the beach and you know, bombs going off everywhere and clouds of smoke and people being disintegrating, literally just blo- having their bodies blown to pieces in front of you. If you were witnessing that scene, Dave, I suspect that as you jumped out of your boat to pull bodies off the beach, you would not have thought, my feet are wet. You know? I bet you didn't think about wet feet. And he said, no, of course I didn't. I had bigger things to worry about. We're in a war. I don't worry about wet feet. But here's the thing. This morning, and not because I was doing this message, just because it was raining, this morning I went for a walk with my dog. Um, And you know the annoying thing about, I've only had a dog for two months, and I didn't realise you have to walk them even when it's raining. It's really annoying. I just thought, oh no, every time you go outside, it'll be like a Lassie advert or something, you know. And the dog is going, it's wonderful, it's all sunny, but the dog doesn't make it sunny, you have to go in the rain as well. And it was pouring with rain in Eastbourne first thing this morning, and so I walked out to the park, and you 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 know when you wear shoes that are sort of waterproof, but when you walk into grass that's a bit on the long side, you get soaking wet feet? Anybody ever know? No, yeah, right. So like, shoes like this, okay, room 101, because they look waterproof, but they're not, and they trick you. So you walk into the field, and you go, oh, it's fine, I'll be robust. Come on, let's go. And you play with your dog, and after a minute or so, you become aware, I've got wet feet. 
and you become very, very annoyed about your wet feet. And actually, it's all you can think about. And you're walking home thinking, flipping wet feet. I hate wet feet. You walk into the house going, Rach, it's pouring outside. I've got wet feet. I've got wet feet. I've got, I've got fed up with my wet feet. And you're getting real stressed about it. And at that moment, I thought, my friend Dave, on D-Day, was not aware of his wet feet. I am incredibly aware of my wet feet, despite the fact that his situation was probably a lot worse than mine. And the reason is because he's aware he's in a war, so the little things that would knock you off course in normal life don't knock you off course when you're at war. Because you're used to that kind of thing. I'm not. I live at peacetime in my head, so when I encounter something mildly inconvenient, I get really stressed about it. And if you know that the world works like this passage we've read, if you know that behind the stage there's a dragon and a baby and a woman and you and the dragon's trying to eat you and the God is protecting you, if you know that's the way the world really works, then the wet feet of this world, however challenging they can be, don't, str- don't cause you to be knocked off guard and don't cause you to lose your faith and don't cause you to think that the whole world's a mess because of your wet feet or whatever it might be for you. You just think, I'm at war. Of course I've got wet feet. Of course I'm being shot at. Of course there's barbed wire on the floor. I'm at war because this is the way the world is. And that actually gives you a a strength. That awareness gives you a strength in combat that means you can withstand some of the horrible things that life throws at you. You will get shot at. That's what it means to be at war. You will, some of you will get have the things I've just described, the cancer, the depression, the miscarriages, the the horrible, horrible, twisted things that this world produces as a result of being fallen, you will encounter many of those things in your life. But that's what you were expecting when when you signed on, isn't it? That's what you knew would happen when you started following Jesus. And one day those things will be no longer and there will be nothing but peace and shalom and harmony and righteousness and justice everywhere and it'll be wonderful. But for now, we fight. For now, we're getting shot at. For now, we've got very wet feet. But that's okay. One day, we won't. But we need to know that life is war. And we need to persevere through it. So, so far, you're really glad you came, aren't you? Dragons, women, beasts, suffering, hardship. Great, really glad I came this Sunday. If it's your first day, sorry. Um, Yeah, I don't know. You might as well hear it from me, I suppose. But Jesus wins. And that's the bit we skipped, and that's why we finished this. So we're going to go back to verses 10 to 11, and we're going to see why this makes all the difference in the world. Until this point, there's a nightmare. There's a big dragon, he's got seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns, or some variant thereof, and he is out to kill you, which is why you face hardship. That's a bit of a nightmare. The important detail we skipped is that Jesus wins, and if we follow him, so do we. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now... And this is as a result of the throwing down of the devil. Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Right? The lamb wins in the battle. So a lamb versus a dragon and the lamb wins. And you read the whole story of Revelation, you'll see that's the way it works. And it ends up with this triumphant chorus, the Hallelujah Chorus, which some of you all know even if you aren't aware that it's from this book. And it's the celebration about the dethroning of the dragon and all of his minions on earth and the victory of the Lamb. But until, until now, the devil, the dragon, has been able to go, yup, 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 and accuse you to God. But because of the victory of the Lamb, he's been thrown down and has no access to do that any longer. And that means that the coming of the kingdom of God means Satan cannot accuse anybody anymore. The cross of Jesus by which he defeated the devil means that no amount of accusation can stick 
He can still try and say it, but he doesn't have an, an audience. It's like he's down there on the, on the floor, scrabbling around, trying to accuse you, and God is in heaven saying, I'm, I can't hear you. You've been thrown at, you cannot accuse me. The accuser has been thrown down forever. That's why some of the hymns we sing say things like, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. I'm tempted to despair. Satan goes, yep, 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 yep. You're rubbish, you're rubbish, you're rubbish. I'm sorry, God can't hear you. Because of the victory of the Lamb, you have been thrown down. You have no right to stand and accuse me. And as a result, all of the other weapons Satan had against you unravel completely. The the basis for Satan's attack on you, as a Christian believer, or as a non-Christian actually, is based on accusation. It's based on saying, you, I will separate you from the love of God. I will put a wedge in between you and your maker, which means that everything will unravel. I will accuse you, I will spit at you, I will convince you and him that you're an evil person. That's how the the enemy attempts to work. And the, the cross, the victory of the Lamb by which Satan was thrown down, means that that's not an option for him anymore. Accusation is close to him. God is deaf to the accusations of the enemy over anybody who has been set, rescued by the Lamb. And the result is that all of the other things that Satan tries to do to separate you from God don't work. He comes and says, hey, I will throw hardship at you. And you say, that will not separate me from God because God's love overwhel- overcomes through hardship. And you come and say, right, I'll persecute you then. I'll get you killed just for being a Christian. I won't, even, I won't throw cancer at you. That's non-Christians cope with cancer, I'll go one up. I will start persecuting you just for being a Christian. And you say, that will not separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because Nothing will. Because the accusation that you're attempting to place on me, but you, you're going to be killed because you're a Christian, doesn't separate me from God. You don't have any right to accuse me at all. And so it goes on. Death. You would think the final weapon in Satan's arsenal. I will kill you for being a Christian. I will kill you whether it's for being a Christian or not. You say... Is that really the best you got? That your best weapon to separate me from God is the thing that causes me to go and be united with Jesus anyway? Is that the, seriously? Is that your plan? Do you see, it doesn't work because accusation is the biggest thing he's got to be able to separate you from God. And if that's gone, then all the rest of it's gone as well. Oh, death, where is your sting? Right? You will still, you'll still die, but there's no sting you're not stinging anymore. It's something that somebody in our class, I love that line, it just, it's like a taunt, you're not stinging anymore. It just doesn't work, there's no power to it. Yes, we die, yes, it's heartbreaking, yes, of course, and I'm surrounded as a pastor by, I've you know, been at funerals just in the last two weeks, it's painful, it's horrible, I'm not trivialising it. What I'm saying is that it doesn't work as a means to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus because accusation has been taken out of the picture with Satan's being cast down from heaven to earth. And here's how the, yeah. And let's just look in verse 11 finally. And then we'll just sing and respond. Let's just look at verse 11, just three ways in which that victory works. How do you and I win the battle against Satan? Which I'm saying we do, but how do we do that? How does it happen? And verse 11 summarizes in just three simple phrases. It says, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. Okay, so we're just, just where we, the last three or four minutes, we're going to close here. They have conquered, you, the, the saints of Jesus Christ, whether Jewish or Gentile, you have conquered the, the enemy by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of your testimony, and because you didn't love your lives even unto death. All right, blood of the Lamb, momentarily, just consider it. You are saved by the blood of the Lamb, 
and not, it is important to say, by the size of your faith. That's kind of important, right? So, your faith matters. But, the blood of the Lamb is a picture that goes back to Exodus. So I'm sorry to jump back to yet another Bible passage, but it's important you see it. On the night of the Exodus, there's a Passover, and Jews still celebrate it today, and what you had to do was, if you are in God's people, you sacrifice a lamb, and you put the blood above the, the doorpost in your house. You spread it on the doorposts and the lintel, and if you do, you're safe. And that's true for everybody who puts blood on their doorpost. So you imagine, on the night of the Passover, you've got two slightly nervous-looking Jews who are worried whether or not God will save them. Okay, and they sit down and they sit with their respective families. You've got Bill and you've got Ben. Bill the Jew and Ben the Jew. Okay, and they're both sitting in the houses and Bill is terrified. He says, do you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to get rescued tonight. I just don't know if it's going to work. I mean, this, I've heard terrible things about the angel of death. We're all going to get struck down and I think we're all going to die. But he's got blood on his doorpost because he was told to. He had faith to put the blood on his doorpost, but now he's really worried about it. Next door to him is Ben. Ben says... They're out of their minds next door. Have you heard about next door? They're doubting the salvation that we're going to have tonight. I'm totally confident. God is going to come through for us. We're going to be saved and we're going to be partying on the far side of the Red Sea by tomorrow morning. Both of those men, one of them with very little confidence, the other one with overwhelming confidence, both of those men are completely saved by the blood of the Lamb and not by the strength of their faith. You know, both of them head in the same direction at the same time. They're both in the same victory parade out of Egypt. They both arrive in the, in the red, on the far side of the Red Sea at exactly the same time. Neither of them is privileged. It doesn't matter that one of them was, yeah, we're going to do it. And the other one was, I'm not sure if we're going to do it. Because it's the blood that saves you. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. And they've overcome him. You and I overcome the enemy not by saying, I am a victorious, ever-living in victory, totally confident, secure person, but by the blood of the Lamb that's over our lives, whether I feel 100% confident in it at a particular time or not. That's what saves. They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. They've conquered him by the word of their testimony, which means the witness to the gospel. I, I, I think we sometimes use testimony, which is fine, but we sometimes use it to mean my personal story. That's very, that's very valid. It's good to do that. But in Revelation, the word of the testimony is more to do with the, the proclamation of the gospel, right? which is obviously overlaps with our story as well. But that's, so you overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, you overcome him by the proclamation of the gospel, because every time you announce Jesus is alive, the tomb is empty, sin is paid for, and you can have life in God, every time you say that, Satan just gets a little bit smaller. You overcome him by that proclamation because it's true and he hates the facts. And then finally, you overcome him for they love not their lives even to death. You know, over the last 10 years, 160,000 Christians have been martyred. If that rate continues, one in 200 people who are Christians alive today will die the death of a martyr. One in 200. That's two, at least, of us on average. Now, we live in Britain, so we may have a smaller than average martyrdom rate. I, I, hope, I expect we do. But you imagine that. That sense that you, you don't love your lives even unto death and that when martyrdom comes, it doesn't separate you from God. Because, as I said before, you look at the enemy and say, is that the worst you got? Martyrdom? I'd, how do you stop somebody who knows that they're free from accusation and who doesn't love their lives even to death? How do you stop someone like that? What, can you, what could Satan possibly throw at them to prevent them from being fruitful? To defeat them? You cannot beat somebody who isn't scared of death and who doesn't think Satan's accusations stick because Jesus has conquered it. And that's exactly the basis on which you and I defeat him through the blood of the Lamb, the word of the Gospel, and not even loving your life to death. Jesus wins. The Lamb wins. The blood saves you. 
And as a result of that, he's, he has saved us because of his blood, because of the word of his testimony, because even he didn't love his life even unto death. And it's on that basis that you and I conquer him and stand free as a result of what he's done for us. I'll just invite the band to come up and we're just going to sing in a moment. Let me, let us, let's just pray for a moment. Let's just try and... I'll take a moment of quiet, actually, and just allow some of the truth here to sink into our hearts and then we'll pray and give thanks to God for what he's done. Father, I want to thank you for sending your son to shed blood that would save us irrespective of our ability, our expertise, our skill and even our confidence sometimes. You sent Jesus to die so that the blood would save us rather than our own virtue or strength. It's not because of what I've done but because of his blood for me. All I need to do is trust in him and you rescue me from everything that I've never found any rescue for anywhere else. Thank you for throwing down the enemy. Thank you for freeing me from accusation. Thank you for conquering death. But thank you for giving me all of those things because of the blood of your son who was victorious over his enemy and because he was, so am I. I love that. I love that message and I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.